My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Hilder. Ecstatic to me encompasses as dark as dark can be and as um, transcendently joyous as possible too. And every shade in between and potentially going from hot to cold on a dime. Right. You know, because that is when you say there's a lot of freaky stuff in the world. You know, one day you're marrying your childhood sweetheart and the next day you're a praying mantis getting your head eaten. Welcome back to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. I'm so glad to have you here with us once again. Our guest this week on the show is Will Sheff, known for his solo work and years with Oakerville River. As I say to Will at one point in the recording that we're about to share, I knew that this was going to be a fun conversation, but I did not realize it would be quite as rollicking and great as it turned out. Will and I touch on an awful lot here, examining how the indie rock landscape has changed and morphed over the last two plus decades, the spiritual core at the source of his music, and his inspired interactions with people like Rocky Erickson and Jason Molina, as well as some great observations about the music of Bill Fay. Before we roll tape, I want to mention that I gleaned a lot of what I say to Will about the notion of daimonic or uh, uh, a sort of muse or spirit having something to do with what we think of when we use the word genius. Uh, I gleaned a lot of those insights from Matt Cardin, who writes a fantastic newsletter that you should check out on Substack about cosmic horror and film and creativity and a lot of other thoughts. That's called The Living Dork, and I do recommend you check it out. Transmissions is brought to you by listeners just like you who pledge their support on Patreon. For exclusive audio notes, radio extras, and a lot more, check out Aquarium Drunkard on Patreon and help us continue to create everything that we offer for listeners like yourself. All right, without further ado, here's my conversation with Will Chef. It begins with a common misunderstanding, as so many fun things often do. Thanks for joining us on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions.
Totally. And um, I just want to make sure before we start taping anything, there's a common um, misunderstanding that sometimes happens where <laughs> the guy who has done a lot of Ockerville River album covers has a name that's remarkably similar to mine. Yeah. It's not me. It's His name is William Schaff. Yeah, so I figured that out uh, in going over final notes and okay. realized the common mistake that I had made. Um <laughs> But, okay. But thanks for clearing that up for sure. Uh, because I do do visual art, but it's not so um, striking that I figure you would have noticed it. <laughs> because Will, Will is the Will is you know Will is the guy that that you would want to talk to, and I'm just a guy who sometimes does the drawing every every couple of years. <laughs> well, how did you feel when when you guys first started working together? Uh, was that a bit? Were you somebody who was familiar with like the? Uh, Molina stuff, uh, a Magnolia Electrico, or anything like that. Well, Will actually started working with. Um, if memory serves, I could be wrong about this, but I believe that Will started working with me before he started working with Jason. Right. Wow. Um, my connection. My, this is how it sort of went in terms of how I connected with Will. Um, way back in the misty reaches of history when there was such a thing as list serves yeah and there were indie rock bands that were truly independent they didn't so much so that they didn't even have a label and were just booking their own tours and in a hand-me-down van that was 20 years old right there was a band that connected with us from a neutral milk hotel listserv and they were called the eyesores mm. and they reached out to us and said, hey, we see that you like Neutral Milk Hotel. We also like Neutral Milk Hotel. We're booking a tour, and we were wondering if you could help us put together a show. Cool. And this was probably, I want to say, something sometime around 1999. And they, uh, they sent us a care package with a press kit and their most recent CD in it. And I just loved the cover art. Yeah. Um, I really connected with the cover art. And probably I noticed the guy's name was William Chef. I don't remember that. Sure. But it was, for, it was from a guy who's, who played in the band. Um, and I just loved the art. And then they came to town and we hung out with them. Will was not on that tour. So I just hung out with uh, Alec Redfern, who was the head of the band, and some of the other people from the band. And with Mark Bedini, who had played drums with them briefly, but was now living in Austin, uh. and would actually go on to become Hawkerville River's second drummer after my high school friend Seth Warren left. Got it. He replaced him with Mark. So I hung out with Alec and with Mark, and I had a little bit of curiosity about William Schaff and his cover art. And I also noticed, like a little bit later, that Will had been the cover artist for Godspeed You Black Emperor's album, Lift Your Skinny Fists Like Antennas to Heaven. Yeah, real um, real powerful I, cover. Yeah, and you know, I think it actually might be a a drawing based on one of his pieces. Got it. I can't recall. But in any case, it's a piece that he did. It's either a piece he drew or it's a piece somebody traced, essentially, and redid. Um, so I was struck by Will's work quite a bit. And then when Mark decided to, when Mark and his fiance Farley were going to get married in Providence, um, they asked us to come to the wedding. So we flew to Providence and 
we played at their wedding actually it was the first time i'd ever played a show for anyone who wasn't where there were there were people in the room who weren't personally my friends right and where the applause felt genuine as opposed to scattered and obligatory yeah sure so it was a really <laughs> treasured moment um this mo- wonderful moment of getting genuine sincere cheers from strangers oh. um which was nice and i stayed with william schaff at his house that night oh, and we great. stayed up all night talking and we bonded we, we both have a um similar backgrounds you know we're roughly the same age he's a little older than me we're from very sort of new england backgrounds um we were both raised in a catholic um environment sure uh we both had family who were in the military so it was like there was a um there was a and we liked a lot of the same stuff we were both really into to Tintin comics. Oh, cool. Um, and had grown up reading Tintin comics. We were both really into Windsor McKay. Um, we liked a lot of the same music. So it was just sort of we're, we're personality wise, we're actually quite different, but we we have a lot of like reference points. Yeah. And we great. We're, we're kind of at heart, we're very similar people. We just sort of act differently, I think, a little bit. Yeah. Um, so we we just hit it off. We got along like a house on fire. And I asked Will if he would do uh, our album cover. And so... And, and he, that was Black Sheep Boy? No, no. That was, was um, Don't Fall in Love with Everyone You See. Right. I probably asked him to do that in 1999. But the album didn't come out... You know, you'll have to check the internet. I can't remember. <laughs> I guess actually that album came out in... No, the album came out in 2002, I think, right? Um, yeah, I think that adds up. Yeah, but the th- I always get confused because when we signed to Jag Jaguar, we were such small fry and such a low priority for them, and they were <laughs> such a small label that was having a hard time like yeah, allocating their resources that they told us right off the bat that they couldn't put our, our album out for a year. Right. And we'd already been talking to them for about six months by that point. So that was pretty crushing, actually, for me, because sure. I had a finished album and being told that it couldn't come out for over a year, I felt like the world was going to pass us by. Sure. Um, but ultimately, it was, I think, a good thing. It gave me a jump on making the next album, and it gave me a jump on making really, really nice artwork. Yeah, um, right. But yeah, but so then I think Jason, because I always knew Jason... Jason was the top dog at the secretly Canadian family. You know, he was like, he was their golden boy and he was sort of the cool ambassador. You know, you would be like, well, this label's cool because of songs, Ohio. And then, you know, immediately when you got signed, like this is not even an exaggeration. I got signed. We got signed by Jag and they asked us to come up and play this little festival that they were um, affiliated with called Bloomington Fest. And, we drove up there. It was our first gig outside of Texas. And immediately after pulling into town, I met Jason Molina in person. He said, hop, o- hop in the van and I'll give you a ride somewhere. And he said, have you ever heard of Rocky Erickson? He put on a Rocky Erickson CD and played Rocky Erickson for me. I'd never heard him. I, I was familiar with who he was, but I'd never heard him before. And Jason was like, 
Jason was like our big brother. Like yeah. he wasn't like personally like a big brother to me, but what I mean is like musically, Songs Ohio and Magnolia always felt like Ockerville's big brother, you know, because they were yeah they were the the big band on the label, and then and then it would seem for a second like you know we would have a press cycle, we would put out Black Sheep Boy, and it would seem like we could got gotten under Jason's shadow. Yeah. You know, out yeah, from under his shadow. For sure. And then he would put out, um, you know, the Magnolia record. Right. And it would be like, ah, damn it. He's back on top. <laughs> I always felt a little, uh, I always loved Jason, but I always felt a little competitive. That's um, that's beautiful. That's, I mean, yeah. because he was such a monumental force. I think about so much of what you've been talking about already is just sort of this reminder of what the sort of, the internet existed, but it was way less uh, encompassing, right? Like, l- way less of our interactions took place online. Um, and yeah, it- and also, you know, there was a... And I don't mean to sound like, you know, back in the good old days, but at that point, indie rock really was independent, and that was a value. That was like a stated value. I mean, dude, I feel like yeah. that word was sort of coined on purpose to separate it from alternative rock, from the corporate quality of alternative rock, it was like making it concrete, like right. organic farming, B Corp, B Corp. You know, you had to be like certified. Yeah, you had to you had to be on an actual independent label, or else it wasn't indie rock. And well, for sure, for sure. And and it, that sort of, I witnessed that change, and I and I tried to put my um, hat out and catch some of the coins right. showering down from heaven too. But you know, I don't, I'm not singling any one no. moment out, but, but the Bushmills ad Bonavere, the, uh, the Jay-Z, Jay-Z cropping up at a grizzly bear concert, even low doing a gap ad. These I, were sort of yeah, like the- moments most people forget, but I remember that was the moment when you're like, okay, there's some, the big money has entered the room. And, and now it's sort of any rock is kind of like the, uh, the farm league. You know, you can get called up to the majors if you uh, if you do a good and if you catch enough uh, attention. You, you know, I remember it was like for me, I I saw it too, right? But I kind of saw it from the record store angle. I was working in a record store, and um, and in its own way, like that industry has also changed in, into a similar sort of like um, farm league for the majors, right? You think about like how much how many how many resources are getting allocated to taylor swift vinyl and i don't even yeah i'm not even upset about taylor swift i mean but taylor swift is in her own way emblematic of what we're talking about too because she's working with like the national who were totally dudes who i first encountered in those early days in the same conversation as as you guys and uh gerardo damian gerardo and pedro lion and uh and I mean, I remember buying the first War on Drugs, right? Like when it, when they were on Secretly or whatever, and sort of there being like a real sense that like this, it's still right when I first got involved. I would just go to the record store, and I wouldn't even really necessarily know what to do. I just would look for stuff that had either the Jag logo or the Secretly logo, and you know, I would pick up Danielson Family or whoever. It was a total intro to that world, and Molino was huge. But I feel like he really—you're talking about in a way the way he expanded the scope of what was uh, kind of sonically possible, right? Because, like, you guys also, I think about those those 
the records you guys made back then, they really have a, a bombastic, huge quality, you know what I mean? And so I think in some mm-hmm. ways, like, um, Melina had some of that too, but you were approaching it. He was it, a little too cool. You were we, approaching we, it from a, yeah, you were approaching, I, I, maybe not, yeah, I know what you mean. I think Jason, um, I, I think Jason would have been happy to be as big as, you know, I don't know, um, Jason Isbell, for example, sure, or bigger, sure. But I also think Jason wasn't swinging for the fences commercially. He had a, he had a little he had too much pride, you know, maybe, and I mean that in a good way, yeah, to pander in quite the same way that some of the other bands did, sure. Um, and I feel that we did a little, you know, because there was a moment where you you'd see it it was like all the the hungry little indie rock artists would be um clustered in the proverbial waiting room and the kingmaker would stroll in and he would point a bony finger you know (laughs) you come in you know you're gonna you're gonna get you're gonna get in that gold elevator and you're gonna go straight to the top it's still happening the the taylor swift sure you know what i mean yeah everybody and and it you see it in film too where you know there's like uh, people whose names were synonymous with independent film are now making movies for Mattel. You know, like it's 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 a very corporatized world that we live in right now, and in a kind of a it's there's still some. I mean, I'm sure that movie's going to be cool. Well, I, but it, I, it's I, a step down the road to suffocation. I think. Well, yeah. I mean, I think we've seen it even in like. I'll put it in the most vanilla, generic terms I can. Right, like. I'm somebody who grew up reading a lot of Marvel comics <laughs> and like yeah. really pouring over these comic books and sort of like parsing through the mythologies that are expressed by them and they're all over the map, right? But then they start making these movies and on one hand, of course, like if you were a kid, there's nothing cooler looking than these movies, right? Like they are the mm-hmm. epitome of like Doritos style greatness. You know, you just like, yeah. yeah, they're they're designed on every level to appeal to your sensibilities, right? But like what you see is that these kind of weird complex mythologies that are expressed over the course of decades and you know, uh, decades and all these different creators, right? These mythologies that get woven are something that, like, the second Hollywood interacts with it, it turns it into, like, a kind of commodity that really the spiritual core flies out the out the door, I think. You yes. know what I mean? And I think that you you said the S word, you know, spiritual. <laughs> I which have is to like, use it. It's the only term that works for me anymore. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. And I think that that's like what we're all kind of a little bit um, afraid to admit is what we're really looking for. Sure. And it's like precisely <laughs> the thing that Mattel and Marvel can't give you. They can't. You know, people say uh, comic books are the new um, Greek myths. You know, that's like a become like a an annoying cliche by now. For sure. But um well, whether or not that was ever true, 
I mean, it, it, in a sense, it's always true, like functionally, just in terms of like <laughs> sure. when, you, when you look at how they work. I mean, some of them are but, just also Greek myths, I think, or like Norse myths, at least, yeah, like right? Thor, <laughs> Thor is, is just like an actual myth. myth, right? But, but you know, it is like if 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 um, Universal made a Jesus movie <laughs> with like a Jesus extended universe. <laughs> Or a Dalai Lama movie or a Mohammed movie, which, you know, that would never happen, but a Buddha movie, um, Zoroaster. Yeah. These movies are not going to, they're not going to feed the, the spiritually hungry. No. By definition, it's just like, it's, there's, there's a, there's something tainted at the core of it because there's always the greedy hand, you know? So that's the thing that makes me sad is that, um, <clears throat> And 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 no one is well. That's not true. There are people who are just getting into it to make money. But I would say the vast most, majority most of artists aren't. out there, yeah. even the ones making the most crass commercial garbage, didn't get into it to make crass commercial garbage. They got into it to make something that feeds your soul, and they also got to feed their kids. Right. And so you know you square the circle, and it probably feels pretty dang good to be making a movie for Mattel. You know what I mean? No, for so, sure. You know, and and you can make a master, a, some a kind of a masterpiece. I haven't seen that one, but like the new Spider-Man movie, Marvel movie, I saw in the theaters, and I kind of was a masterpiece. You know, the, I, I saw it, the cartoon um, one, or yeah, uh, yeah, I saw sure. it from a crass, an, an angry, crusty, independent rock crass angle where it made me mad, and I saw it from a sheer soul heart angle as a viewer where I did feel spiritually nourished by it to a degree. Um, yeah, I mean, I think so, that's, I don't know. that's the promise of art, right? And it's what makes it such an uncomfortable conversation is that, like, these things that we get out of this stuff is they're so powerful that they're so powerful that like they they smuggle meaning into everything, right? So it's like it's all there is there is a on a level. I remember like even kind of what you're talking about, like all of a sudden people are making records with Kanye West or whatever, right? Like uh, yeah. these these like kind of indie rock guys that I'm looking up to and thinking like, okay, this is like a thing I understand. But what I realize now is like on one level they were just get they were kind of getting in at the the very end of the moment where it was going to work, right? You know what I mean? That you were going to make big money. There, I, You can still make big money. You're right. You mentioned that earlier. And I think you're right. But in a lot of ways, it feels like kind of getting on board <laughs> the sinking ship a little bit. Um, because it's just like... Yeah, or it's like, you know, Taylor Swift's helicopter descends above the Titanic. What are you not going to do, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're going to get on board. No, for sure. And I think about how crazy it is, though. But this idea that, like, wow, it's so crazy that, that, that Bon Iver is making records with Kanye West. And then it's like, oh, wow, isn't that crazy? Like, Father John Misty's got a record, uh, like, a, write, a co-write on a Beyonce album or whatever. And then you realize, like, I mean... It's also just engaging with the culture in a real major way. So I feel like you have such a unique vantage point on all of this stuff. And it's so funny. I wrote like out here like in the in the in the interviews you did for for your most recent record, Nothing Special, your your solo debut. I felt I read a lot of them and you really had to tackle a lot of heavy topics, right? Like you're talking about the state of the industry, the passing of your former bandmate, Travis Nelson, my, my condolences, of course. Um, Thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. Climate change, you know, which you're trying to address like 
pretty express explicitly on the on the record, you know. And I just found myself thinking, like, God, I wonder if if he's ever just like. I wish somebody would just ask me about like how we recorded the drums or something. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, <laughs> and I was like, so we'll we'll ease in. We'll we'll start with some like light stuff. But no, we dove right into the heavy topic. So, uh, well, that's just me. <laughs> I'm 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 an emotional dumper. You know, like you catch me and I'm the guy at the party who starts talking to you about like existential issues, and then you're like eyeing the, you know, pulling out your phone and <laughs> pretending somebody texted you. Yeah, that's just my that's just my vibe. <laughs> no, no joke, but but really, the record is is really great, and there there's a lot of moments specifically that I enjoyed just from a total kind of um, guitar freakout angle. The guitar oh, nice. so, the guitar solos have a, a a good freakish quality on on the record. You know what I mean? Like when they pop in, they bring a lot of zest. I feel like to to real. I appreciate that. I I always like and and this sort of speaks to what we're talking about. I guess. I I always am looking for a little bit of a danger, a little bit of a going over the edge, a little bit of like yeah. going too far. Yeah. You know, it's like something that I look for in my favorite art. Whenever I feel like the roller coaster, I'm going on I'm on the roller coaster and the the space mountain or the the you know the big mountain rocks are going to hit my head maybe yeah that's always like my that's when i feel very alive um and so you know with those guitar and i also just think guitar is such a tremendously expressive instrument it just really um yeah you and can. and i have such a strong relationship with my guitarist will grafe and he, he and i co-wrote some of those songs together we've been doing a lot more co-writing actually recently and working on more stuff like that and it's like it is um it just speaks to me sort of on a soul level yeah and and i always i like the people who go way out i'm not comparing myself i'm not comparing um you know this this to, to, to spiritual jazz but like for example like there's always the moment on like you know when the when the nice thing that you kind of want to be Miles Davis turns into Pharaoh Sanders, yeah. <laughs> you're like, oh, God, I didn't sign up for this. That's always the moment when I feel very alive, you know, or Sonny Chirac or something like that. Like, yeah, like the, the fact when, he, when you're listening to the Sonny Chirac record, and I know he's a big influence on Will, you, you never like can relax because you never know what the fuck is going to happen. Like something really scary could happen. No matter what, like even when it's really pretty, you know, like I think of that Ask the Ages record, you know, right? Where there's mm. like a, I also thought about this a lot when Pharaoh Saunders passed away because I think that that element you're talking about, the the way out element, I mean, to me, like being drawn to that is really, it, it, it really is that, seeking a kind of soul nourishment right because like if you really look at the 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 universe or whatever um to i guess use a fairly generalized term um (laughs) the universe if you look at it though it means like it it, it's it's freakish at moments right like there's a the yeah if, if art can't address like that like the dread and the and the transcendence that like how close those two things are to each other. That's why I'm always look. That's what, I mean, that's what I hear of course in Molina's work. It's what I hear in a lot of my favorite stuff from you. It's, it's like that sense that like the, um, 
it's a it's a sense that like the unexpected is accounted for in this in this music and that that's always like a cool that's a quality i think that has grown and matured as your work has gone on you know what i mean well i really appreciate that and that's how i feel about it too it's it's always a value that i had and i think that you hear it in even the earliest work sometimes unintentionally but you know um more and more as i've done more and more writing i always want to be able to have to let in more mystery and to like crack things open a little bit more keep things a little bit um unexplained sure have moments that i don't even understand myself what i'm talking about which is different than um putting something half baked into the world where you're like i don't know and i don't care what this means it's it's more like this feels so pregnant with meaning but i can't even fully explain what the meaning is and that's why it's a song and not like a you know a substack um no for for sure and it's it's so funny but yeah like that i feel like that that comes through in in the work and yeah and and i think that um not to cut you off but no but no I, one thing i one thing i've noticed too is that i always um i always thought of the i always like would say even from i even remember saying this in the earliest days before we even recorded the first album i think people would say oh your work is really dark and and i would say i hope that i hope that's not true because (laughs) what i actually want it to be is like ecstatic right and ecstatic to me encompasses as dark as dark can be and as um, transcendently joyous as possible too, and every shade in between, and go- potentially going from hot to cold on a dime. Right. You know, because that is when you say there's a lot of freaky stuff in the world. You know, one day you're marrying your childhood sweetheart, and the next day you're a praying mantis getting your head eaten. Right. You know. No. Yeah. Totally. totally. Those are both experiences you can have. Right. In this world, so I try to sort of encompass all of those, and I think as I've gone on i think in the early stuff there was the the work was dark with like rays of sunshine and i think that more over time i became began to sort of embrace spirituality and um and a sort of uh a cosmic um love theme more maybe but with the uh also the idea that you could get your head eaten well at this yeah at any moment yeah which is crucial to that outlook right both the extreme temporality of our existence you know and then also the sort of cosmic thing which i think is really interesting it, you know you you mentioned substack and I, you also have a patreon right i do yeah and it's been so fun i I, I did it as a little experiment because I was doing these live albums and then I wanted to keep the party going, but the ser- the service I was using didn't have the technical capabilities to do what I wanted to do. And Patreon's like well set up for that. Sure. So I, I tried it as an experiment, but what it's turned into is this great way that I can put out even sort of more ragged and also very niche work, you know, and not... yeah. Like I did a record where when I was a kid, I had um, 
I made a quote unquote album as a quote unquote band with my like childhood friends. We were like 11 years old and we just like got whatever instruments we kind of knew how to play. And we just improvised into a boom box for 20 minutes. And I released that and I got all the original band back together. We only used the instrumentation we'd used the first time and we recorded a cassette again and we improvised it all again 35 years later. So I, I, you know, if I were to release that in the real world, I would like find a label and hire a publicist to have explained to right. you know, the world what it is. And it's really weird. And then I would have to deal with like people being like, is this the new direction of what you're doing? Yeah. Only 11 on year old. Yeah. Only 11 year old jams. Right. Yeah. On the Patreon, I can do wild shit like that. And I have a very indulgent audience for it. So I get to do, I get, you know, I do podcasts. I do, I do art for that. Right. I do um, all kinds of fun stuff. And yeah, so that's, that's been a fun sort of a sideline. Yeah, that's, that's great. It makes me think about what you mentioned earlier in the conversation when you were saying that like you signed to Jag and they were like, you know, your record's not going to come out for a year. Like in a way it sounds like maybe, that uh, pressure is has eased a little bit just in terms of culture. I mean, but not without downsides, right? I mean, like in a way, what you're doing is is sort of the what traditionally maybe the industry would have helped facilitate on its own. You know what I mean? Doing like as a, but I I think in a lot of ways it's a much it feels like a much more sustainable situation in terms of the way the internet has worked out, right? I mean, it feels well. You look at like um, you know, speaking of pharaoh sanders like there there'll be there were times where he would put out several records a year the beatles you know um of course Dylan. that was like the 60s paradigm was like just record all the time you could put out a, more than one record a year might put out three records a year sure and you know as much as daniel eck thinks that's the future i do think that there's a little bit of a um I guess I see it from both angles because sometimes in streaming, it seems like there's a little bit of data pollution going on of where you're course. like, everyone's first thought is not always their best thought, but there it is on the, on the streaming services. Right. Um, but you know, I, if I'm going to go ahead and like lose a ton of money and put out, um, a tent pole album, you know, and hire a publicist and do a big thing, I want to make sure that's like my very, very best work that I've done. For sure. So I, I, I'm always writing, I'm always recording, but I, I kind of set aside the best grapes from the harvest to make the grand reserve wine. And that's the thing I lose a bunch of money throwing my money into trying to make an album for. Right. But like sometimes the most fun, weird ass, exciting things are the like the weird, funky grapes. Yeah. The kombucha. You know what I mean? Oh, and yeah. that I get, to, I don't want to put out, I don't want to put out a million records a year because I do think that the industry just doesn't, isn't good that way for someone like me. Sure. So I get to sort of sell that on the Patreon. Yeah. I like that. That's great. That's great. And it sounds like a, a rather holistic art project overall. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful. It's, I get to still do, and some of the shit that I do, you know, like, it's not for everybody. It might not even be for anybody yeah. but me, you know, and who knows, maybe, maybe somebody, one person out there is like, this is the best thing you've ever done. And I never knew I needed to hear this. And that person can subscribe to the Patreon and I can kind of keep my 
work going and yeah and have yeah. an outward facing um you know fine dining experience of my work <laughs> and have this sort of like the burger shack in the back for and, sure and kind of be both things well nothing special is definitely a fine dining situation for sure <laughs> it is no it really is it's, it's it sounds great and it's a really is a really thank you i really enjoyed spending time with it Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and, as an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with. And uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and, of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. Before I ask uh, just a little briefly about that, I I wanted to jump back. You you mentioned that you were driving along with Jason Molina, and I I forgot what year you said it was, but it's when he first played you Rocky Erickson. Um, yeah, I'm thinking that was uh, it was probably 2001 that 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 happened. So little, you know. Kind of hard to imagine that just about a decade later you would be producing a record for Rocky Erickson. Yeah, I know, I know. Boss, crazy, crazy stuff. I mean, to me, that speaks a little bit to the the Jason Molina weirdness, you know, uh, mm. knowing that he was a part of that connection, uh, first yeah. establishing it. But you, so you, you moved. You had been. You'd moved to Texas uh, fin- after you finished college, right? Yeah, right after I finished college, I had a like great friend group in um in high school. We were like really close and it was a it was kind of a beautiful thing. It kind of saved my life after a, a fairly unhappy childhood. Mm. And then I went off to college and without those people around, I fell apart. Sure. And I just I had a I had four terrible years in school, just depression and didn't do anything and I felt like my life was over. Um, and then I kind of like rallied and was like, fuck this. I need to go back to where I was in high school. I literally called up my high school friends and who I had a band with. And I, I'm only realizing this later, but I, I guess I'm good at convincing people to do, to do things Sure, like getting them inspired, I guess, or what, whatever. But I ins- inspired them somehow to move to Texas with me and start the band again. Oh, that's um, great. Yeah, so we we moved down to Austin. We didn't know shit about having a real band in the real marketplace of like music. So it took us a long time to to even like get gigs and all that. But um, we all lived in the same house. We all rehearsed. We rehearsed every night, you know, for hours. I was writing all the time, and it was it was a beautiful thing. It was really a, it was it was great. Yeah. So that that was sort of like 
how Ockerville River got started. Nice. And uh, yeah, yeah. And go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say. I mean, when when you're kind of in that moment, were you? connecting to any other texas music you know when i think of rocky erickson i think of the 13th floor elevators and yeah and zz top and the earlier you know versions of that group or whatever moving sidewalks things like that i definitely think that there's kind of a, a psychedelic quality to texas right like um, yeah oh yeah that definitely carries through to stuff like butthole surfers or in, a, in its own way like i just wonder how you guys sort of conceive of yourself sort of in that scheme of things right like what was was there any regional sort of view in your head uh in, a, in terms of a sense of where you were at musically well i wasn't that sophisticated or knowledgeable about texas you know i had grown up in new england and sure. i had a very weird frame of reference because i was an older the oldest child i didn't have a cool older brother to show me anything the internet was not a thing right so I was kind of on my own. I didn't know, like, so many of my compatriots and rock bands, they're like, oh, yeah, I got into Black Flag when I was 13 because my sister played them for me. I was not like that. I was, like, on my own. So <laughs> my Big Bang was not punk rock at all. It was, like, psychedelic British folk. Um, I had a good friend whose parents were musicians, and they loved the Incredible String Band. Oh, great. And I heard that when I was, like, 14. And that blew my brain into shreds. Like I just, I didn't know you could make music like that. And it completely, it completely changed my life in a big way. Um, but I also didn't really connect the dots. I didn't know like, okay, there's, there's a, there's psychedelic music. And also this music is not traditional. So I got, right. I got into traditional um, sort of, Scottish and and English and uh, Irish music, like basically British folk. Um, I was really into that stuff. And then that got me into old time American music. And then that got me into country music, which is not big in New England. So it took me a second. So by the time I was going to Texas, I was like, this is cool. I'm going to where there's country music. And that I like that. And I like folk music. And I love the incredible string band. Um, and I was into indie rock and I loved Daniel Johnston. Oh, sure. I, I, you know, my, my Zach already lived in Austin when, when we were going to college, Zach, the original bassist. So he was going to, um, sound exchange and buying the Daniel Johnston self-released cassettes that they kept in a little box, shoe box on the counter there and mailing them to me. And I would listen to them like religiously um, I actually knew who Brian Beatty was, the first producer we, we worked with, because he gave Daniel his first gig at the Hole in the Wall with his band Glass Eye, and then produced some Daniel records. So when when Brian started working with me, like that was as big of a deal as working with Rocky Erickson later. For sure. Um, so I had a head full of like Daniel and folk music and this incredible string band and country music, and then I I was also aware of like the trance syndicate bands, you know, like. That to me was really cool, like Monroe Mustang and all the like, the kind of um, the freaky lo-fi psych fuzz bands that were happening around that time. Sure, but I didn't hang out with any of them. I, I, they were too cool for me. But I was very like, I had my face pressed up against the glass, you know, <laughs> wanting to be part of that crowd. Sure. Um, 
the, and, and in a lot of ways, you don't get to those guys without Rocky. And you don't even you don't even get to Daniel without Rocky, because even though I don't think Daniel was influenced by Rocky probably at all, I think that Daniel's fan base, like their appetite was whetted by a Rocky Erickson. For, I, I kind of for, kind of chafes me when they get compared because they're very stylistically different. But I, I get why they get compared. Well, um, yeah, I mean, to be more to be most generous, like it's easy to view both of them as visionary musicians. Right. You know, like in, in a lineage there. But uh, and I mean, like out an outsider art, which is a term that gets it's a very annoying term and it's weird. And anytime that I, I got to see both Daniel Johnson and Rocky Erickson, I saw Rocky Erickson in Marfa uh, at Marfa Myths. Oh, fun. Nice. Right before, not long before he passed away. And there was a writer yeah. from GQ there. And some, I was like sitting backstage awkwardly, completely uncertain if that's where I was supposed to be or not. You know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. And this GQ guy was taking photos of Rocky in the room and... <laughs> Rocky finished with his photo set and he sat down next to me and he was like, I always told my mom one day I'd end up in gentlemen's quarterly. And I was like, <laughs> it was like one of the greatest moments of my life. And Rocky is so great. And I was just like, um, thank, thanks Rocky. You know, uh, looking forward to the show. And he was like, yeah, it'll be fun. <laughs> and then that was like, yeah. it. you know what I mean? Like, uh, it was great. He was a hilarious dude. He was really like, for a guy who was very, um, who fought a lot of his own demons because of schizophrenia, um, he was very present, and he had a he had a way of always saying the right thing. Yeah, that's um, that's great. Sometimes the right thing was the absolute wrong thing. Like, <laughs> there's I wasn't present for this, but there was there's a story that someone told me um, where he was playing some club in Houston and the promoter, you know, had come to the show to meet him personally and said, um, and said, Rocky, I'm such a huge fan. I just like love your work so much. I'm so honored that you're playing at my club. You know, this is like a huge moment for me. Thank you for coming, you know, and I'm so excited for the show. And Rocky said, um, all right, I'll see you die tonight, brother. That's incredible. Yeah. Which is like <laughs> only Rocky Erickson could say that. It's just like the most insanely funny thing to say at that moment. Um I'm, like yeah. He was so friendly too. He could say something like that to you and you're like that's the most disturbing thing I've ever heard and yet like I I don't feel threatened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean it's just kind of reminder, a kind of reminder of the messages he heard, right? When like the yeah, he when he's he would, listening to he'd had bad days too, you know. No, he did, and, and tours with him where he 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 would say, "I have, I'm having, I'm hearing voices." Yeah, I'm hearing voices saying some scary stuff. You know, I remember when we had to fly international with him yeah. to Norway. He was in a really bad way. He was never. Um, creepy or mean to us or or anything but he was very like he was there was there was dark energy coming off of him and at yeah. one point yeah. i tried to sort of inquire about what was going on and he, he told me that he was just hearing bad voices saying bad things to him yeah um you know and that would ha- that's probably what that i'll see you die tonight brother thing was sure but he could also be very cheerful in this very texas <laughs> you know classic 
friendly Texas boy way about it. No, I mean he really is. That's su- that's such an interesting thing. I I think I think back on that record that you guys made together, and I think that one it was it was really a, a, a um like to incorporate the recordings that he had made right the um was it the rusk uh mental yeah you know like he was in a facility unfortunately um and unable to kind of sort things out a little bit but he had made these recordings and you don't use like all of them right but you kind of sample from that stuff and he was in jail unjustly i mean yeah i don't mean to i i don't i don't i only take exception with what you said just to clear it up no, I just, he, I'm, I'm misunderstanding. He was, made yeah, a sure. vict- he was made a target by the Texas police, and th- what they did to him was just beyond fucked up. I mean, something yes, something that goes back that something that goes back all the way to the very beginning of his career, right? Like the Texas police yes. hassling the 13th floor elevators endlessly yes. in those early days. Yes. I mean, people forget that somebody had to be a fucking psychedelic pioneer in Texas. There weren't a lot of them, right? And and like being there in Marfa and seeing the exhibit that Anthology Records put on about the early days of the 13th floor elevators, he was always like kind of a, he was always hassled definitely by those forces. But yeah, so, but you, you drew from those recordings, uh, some, some stuff and then obviously augmented it with lots of new stuff. What was it like collaborating with him? And then, you know, what, what was for you part of the draw of including from those archival recordings? Well, it's hard for me to explain the archival part because sometimes I don't make decisions. I make decisions intuitively instead of intellectually. So sure. all I can really say is that it just felt right. Yeah. I wanted that record to be psychedelic and I wanted it to be immersive. I wanted it to, I wanted it to have gravity. And I also wanted it to be psychedelic at the same time. Yeah. Those two things don't always go together. Um, you know, like, because psychedelic, I guess what I mean to say is I wanted it to be psychedelic and grounded at the same time. Well, because and those two things don't always go together. Yeah. I mean, I remember sort of like being at, at the time I had like a, a view of Rocky Erickson that was. Of, of course, informed by the 13th floor elevators, but also the alien stuff, right? So I definitely yeah. heard him as a kind of uh, punk, kind of like weird psych punk uh, element to him. So I I don't know if that's what I went into that record expecting, but it's not that. You didn't choose to do that kind of record, you know what I mean? And uh, I've always thought that was really cool because the grounded quality the psychedelic qualities don't always come from overt uh, psychedelic rock sonic touch references. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you know, part of that was a function of his manager gave me a bunch of songs that they wanted to pull from. And there just weren't that many horror rock songs. Well, no, for sure. For sure. That was part of it. But the other part of it was that that Rusk stuff had this beautiful Gnostic cosmic Christian quality and folky quality that was more like the elevators to me, more like um, the quiet elevator songs. Like I had to tell you and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think that's my favorite Um, Rocky's tender, sweet yearning spiritual side just resonates with me quite a bit. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so I kind of wanted to 
it was a combination of the fact that we didn't have a lot of like horror rock shit to choose from and that Rocky was not in a really a very horror rock place. Sure. And that that was, that was what was speaking to me. And I, I, I felt like he had never made a sort of a cosmic psych record, psych folk record. Maybe also maybe my incredible string band yeah. background makes, makes me sort of, more attuned to psychedelic folk than to psychedelic rock a little bit um well yeah maybe i don't know but i also was not trying to i didn't want to impose my own worldview on it over much rocky wasn't giving me very much feedback on what kind of an album he wanted to make but he was very like he very much put his faith in me yeah i, I did this weird thing where i his relationship with Tommy Hall was always very interesting. Tommy was like the 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 type A academic cerebral intellectual, and Rocky was like the the sweet golden wild like feral man of the woods. Yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah, and I had a vision that I would be Tommy Hall, um, and except Tommy kind of exploited Rocky and kind of corralled him. So I kind of wanted to be like the the the, the light, yeah. Tommy Hall, the not the Tommy Hall of darkness, but the Tommy Hall of light. Oh, and I like that. I, I know this may sound um, sort of like I'm just projecting, and maybe I am, but I think Rocky felt that. I think he knew. I think he understood that that was the 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 um, the bit I was doing. Kind of, yeah. Was like, yeah. Um, you know, so. He's, he was way on board. Um, he never said, I want things to be like this or I want things to be like that. But I think he got it. Yeah. But, you know, also that record, I wanted to speak to like, you know, there are songs like that, like Bring Back the Past. Rocky was also like power poppy at times. For sure. And he had an Americana side too as a Texas guy. So I kind of wanted that album to encompass a little bit of all of it. You know, the Rusk psych folk, the country boy the buddy holly worshiper i love that the, yeah the power pop um guy and kind of and the horror rock too and have a little bit of all of that you know well for sure and that power pop side by the way uh it's funny i certainly don't mean i went into that record expecting you to have made an aliens record but i would say you know what I, what i do think is interesting is that power pop element is just as present in those records, the Aliens records. You know what I mean? Like a song like yeah. Starry Eyes is like exactly if if the record. I mean, the records basically sort of did release a song called Starry Eyes, and it's a perfect power pop song. So, um, you know, that's a that's a that's a great example. But yeah, I love that you accentuated that stuff, and I also really do like the idea of viewing him almost in the lineage of a sort of a a Gnostic Christian uh, cosmicist. You know, like. Uh, Philip K. Dick or even Judy Sill, you know, these people. And who... that's not, um, a, that, by the way, that's not me forcing a square peg into a round hole. Rocky was very familiar with all that stuff. Oh, no, yeah, he's he, explicitly. He had read Theosophy stuff, Madame Botovsky. He had read, uh, he was very familiar with Gurdjieff. Um, you know, he Rocky's really w was, is, because he's still with us, he's really well read. And he's really well read in Gnostic Christianity and, and in sort of esoteric spiritual literature. I, so that I love was that. not a square peg moment, you know? No, and that to me is beautiful and I think really showcases the kind of 
the level maybe on which you two were able to to get you know the record comes through I remember yeah I, I reviewed it back then for tiny mixtapes and I, I was really oh, nice. taken by it and it's so funny to go back and read something that I wrote that long ago I was very nervous doing so before we spoke um, uh. but it was no it's good I liked it at least uh. <laughs> I can't say it was super well written but they did a great job editing me that's for sure Oh, nice. <laughs> um, well that record kind of changed my life I mean working with Rocky um, I I, uh, for one thing, there's a part of you that always thinks, well, there's some exaggeration in the story, surely. You know, it's fun to believe a wild and woolly story, but in real life, it's, it's, you know, you got to brush your teeth and pay your taxes. Yeah. Uh, that's not true, man. I've never experienced <laughs> anything like this, but Rocky, the, the legends are all real. Yeah. <laughs> it was like working with Sasquatch and you're like, oh <laughs> shit, he's real. Um, <laughs> His mother is is the most psychedelic human I've ever met. He 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 uh, would say things that were like psychic. He would predict things that were going to happen. Um, you know, it was it was so it was a um, a really unearthly, weird in the old English sense of the word he, you know what i he, mean he like was it, plugged into something some sort of he was very plugged into something and um it changed my life because i had never it was like learning that ufos are real you know what i mean like right, right like and and i also it was also humbling because i i knew i was in the presence of someone who had genius i don't i don't love to say the, the word to call someone a genius because I think that's not really true to the origin of that word, but genius—the idea of having genius. Rocky was touched by like something that was not fully explainable, you know. By well, yeah, that's what—that's that that notion, right? Of the sort of the demon muse or whatever, right? That like it—it's the daimonic uh that the real use of genius and daim and daimon are like you know synonymous words if you go back. What entomologically, I, I have a terrible yeah. time with that word, but it really is. It's this force that's like uh, kind of overtaking you, and for good and ill. You know what I mean? Like you can't really, um, you don't always get to pick. It almost feels like you know, but it, you get the sense that he talked about how he was hearing the songs too. You know what I mean? So it's yeah, like, um, he was open. He was open to yeah the yeah. full. He was open to this thing that most of us are closed. Too. And the price of being open is that you have to be open to the devil, to Satan, and to Jesus. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And let them take a ride in your body sometimes. And, and he, that yeah, was he, scary. He... And... <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I, wow. I, and I wanted that for myself afterwards. You know, like I, after I witnessed it, I thought, uh, I. I need to follow in this path because now that I've seen this, like nothing less will do. And I think that that was when my, that was like, that kind of set me on the path that I'm still on. You know what I mean? Like, I, wow. and, and it, it was like, so it was really, it, you know, it, that was, it changed my work the, permanently, uh, I think, you know? The apocalypse of St. Rocky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, you know, in addition to, I think, that being the the, the greatest um, 
like the most meaningful thing I've done with my life. It also felt like it was a real fork in the road for me creatively. And yeah. and I don't know whether commercially it was the best mo mo moment for that to happen, but it was definitely like from a spiritual creative standpoint, it was like he came along right when I needed him. Oh, that's really beautiful to consider. And I'm glad that that record holds such a meaningful place in oh, yeah. in your life, you know, certainly does in in the listeners as well. I um you know I I am tempted as we get close to wrapping up to ask you if there if if there've ever been any other people that you've come across in your travels that uh made you feel in a, a similar way to to Rocky, you know? Uh yeah, well, what, can you sort of clarify what I you mean? Because uh, it's that sort of undeniable feeling that they're like kind of, uh, you know, in touch with something uh, in terms of an artistic uh, practice or expression. Brian Beatty, the first producer yeah. I ever worked with, um, he's he's just so brilliant, and um, I think about him every time I do anything. Um, and he's not as he's not like a sort of a, a wild alchemist who you know smelled too much of the mercury fumes or whatever. Sure, but he <laughs> but he knows he is too. You know, like he he's he's in touch with something intuitive that you know he he's able to live a normal life, but he's got a really strong sense of intuition and he's really. He's just like a, he's got a real sense of fun and a real sense of like joy in the work with a twinkle in his eye. And I think about him a lot. He's, he, he has a weird way of working. If he could work in a more conventional producer way, I think he would be as famous as Rick Rubin yeah. as a producer, but because of his weird way of working, he's not, but I think he's every bit the the genius. You know, not to I, I know I was trashing using genius as a describe <laughs> a word, but he's every bit you know as brilliant. Um, my grandfather was like that. Uh, I don't know what exactly it was with him, and I've thought about this a lot. But he just seemed like a very you know some um, another person in the family one time described him as the most integrated person they'd ever met. Huh. That's a good way to put it. He was a, I don't know if he was like a hot, hot, like far along his, his number of incarnations or, or if he was like a old soul or what, but he was just one of these people who could put you at, at peace just by being there. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know what his secret was, but he was a, you know how there's certain people in your life and, and you, you might, there's, and I'm, you know, you're lucky if you meet one of them, but you probably don't know more than three that you just like, you just want to be around him. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, he had that. He, he was like, you know, you know, when you're you're petting your dog and you just your heart sort of your heart rate lowers and you just feel good. Yeah, there's not many people <laughs> who can make you feel by like that just by being in their room. But no, he had that. Um, yeah, and honestly, I mean, those are the big three for me. Yeah. Um, I would say Ben Lazar Davis, the bassist that I play with sometimes and that wrote some of the songs for me. Yeah. 
uh, he's one of the people I've met in my life who, in a way that reminds me of Rocky and reminds me of Brian, is tapped into something musical that feels almost like it touches something otherworldly. Yeah. Like he's, he's really just such a talented person. And I don't mean to um, exclude all the other talented people that I've played with, but like there's a special quality to Ben where it's like a kind of an obsessive um, voice that's talking to him that he can't turn off in a good way. Yeah. Um, He's got a little touch of it, but you know, those are the people I guess I would say, but, but Rocky, I think Rocky and my grandfather were two people where you're kind of like, it's hard for me to explain how these people exist. um, Given what I feel like I understand about the universe. Yeah. 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 That's fantastic. Well, Will, before I let you go, I wanted to ask what, um, You've done lots of great covers over your career, mm. and one that I uh, always am inclined to ask about because I have a big framed image of uh, Jim Sullivan in my office oh. where I record the podcast. Um, I got to work. We I was part of uh, Light in the Attic put out his second record as well. Um, the play, yeah, that's record. nice. Yeah, nice record. I worked on the liner notes of that. It's a great record. Uh, UFO, of course, but uh, the better record, in my opinion. Yes, uh, it's it's better. Um, there's no uh, denying it, but um, but I like the second record quite a bit. Oh, me too. It's, it's just like I think it's fantastic. It, yeah, if the if UFO never existed, people would still really love the Playboy record. But UFO is on a whole nother level. Undoubtedly, Damien Gerardo once said he liked the Playboy record even better than UFO, which I think is a beautifully Damien statement. Um. But um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. He played me some of the. He told me that actually. Now that you think, now that you remind me of <laughs> he's, it, he's yeah. I mean, I think I think he really he really does dig that one. But that song, Damien has amazing taste. I don't always see eye to eye with his taste, but he has. It's it's really specifically true to himself. I remember being really young and reading this uh, a comic illustrated interview with him in a magazine called Band Doppler. And he mm-hmm. it was he was just talking about like um like dub dub reggae stuff. Oh yeah, he, he loves dub. Yeah, and it was like real early for me, and I just remember being like, "Hang on, that sub pop dude, <laughs> Ghost of David, that guy doesn't listen to dub." I was very yeah. I was obviously very wrong, but um, <laughs> but no UFO. I wondered if um you know what, what if you could speak a little bit to to what you like about that song as we wrap things up here on transmissions thanks for joining us by the way i never even introduced oh, yeah. you proper we just got into oh, it that's all right right away well you know at the risk of um saying something that uh, is incredibly polarizing but that i've been kind of dancing around the edges of uh you know one of the things i like about ufo is that i think of it also as a gnostic christian song you know it's he's talking about jesus he's 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 um yeah. He's making an analogy between Jesus and a sort of a David Bowie-esque Starman kind of figure. Yeah. Even though it predates Starman. Yeah. Um Have you ever heard the Larry, have you ever heard the Larry Norman song UFO? I haven't. So so Larry Norman is I, I, are you familiar with him, the Christian rock guy? Yeah, sort of passingly. I would recommend checking some of his stuff out, but definitely check out his song UFO, which um 
does what you're saying too, but it's basically like Jesus Christ will come in a UFO. Like he's very, he's pretty uh, direct about it. But I think that you're 100% onto something in terms of Jim Sullivan. It took me a second to figure that out. Kind of like I Would Die For You by Prince, which took me like 25 years or 30 years to understand that he's singing from the point of view of Jesus. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. And, and, I, and, you know, this is the thing is that like, I used to sing about murder and, you know, um, suicide and war criminals and, and it made people uncomfortable. Pornographic actresses. Right. Yeah. And, and I always have relished making people uncomfortable. I, like I said, I like it when you feel like there's a little bit of dangerousness. And then I realized that what makes people really uncomfortable is Jesus. Yeah. So ever since then I've, um, and also I have a real complicated relationship with Jesus because I was raised Catholic, but I, you know, have a, you know, unsurprisingly, I have a ton of issues with the Catholic church. Um, but always Jesus was like, this dude fucking rules, yeah. you know, and Mary even more so. Um, you were just like, Jesus and Mary are like the two best personages, you know, that I, you could imagine. And they're just wrapped in this rotten burrito of toxic sludge, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I just dig when Pete, when Jesus is gro- is portrayed in a groovy way, it makes me very happy, you know, like, and not in a sort of a Christian, uh, church camp counselor oh but more in the wild-eyed hippie manner you know dude you're 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 speaking my language uh explicitly you know we we did this release recently uh with aquarium drunkard and our friends at black forestry and org records where we put out this uh we put out two volumes of like jesus people music like early yeah christian i love that shit i mean to me I also have a very complicated relationship with, uh, with you know, with Jesus and with Christianity, having grown up not Catholic, but my own, uh, the evangelical brand, you know. Oh, which, geez, uh, yeah. I, both. It's a whole different flavor of fucked up. It's a different. <laughs> it's a different flavor. There's overlapping. There's overlapping tastes, uh, unfortunately, at times, and then there's differences and whatever. I also say this as somebody who usually lights a Jesus candle before I do the podcast. So, and it is burning yeah. currently. Um, yeah. These notions of like, we've talked with Eric Davis, the great counterculture writer. Oh, I love him. Yeah. Yeah. And he's basically, I, one of my favorite things is he's like, no, preserve the groovy Jesus. Like, preserve that guy. You know, that guy is like, if something about that speaks to you, that's a good thing carry it forward and you don't have to define yourself by the shitty aspects of that stuff, you know? Um, No, it's ours. You know what I mean? Like it's not right. That's, that's what I feel is if you, it's like if you leave America because you don't like the direction it's going, then you bear some responsibility for that direction. Sure. I mean, the the bastards have Jesus, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like you gotta, you gotta, you he's hanging off the cliff you got to keep holding his hand you know what i mean well sure i I mean at the same time they'll never what they not to get super gnostic on you but like i'll just get the most gnostic thing i'll say in this interview is like 
you know, it's the demiurge. That's what that's what the the archons um, are imposing their will. No, yeah, that, yeah, that's what the, those people worship. They they worship the demiurge. That's that's how I, I think about it. I I mean, I think that um, that just like any other practice or esoteric weirdness, right? Like, if you're gonna fool around with Gnosticism, you have to acknowledge all sorts of weird historical murkiness and everything else you know yeah but and they're they're pretty anti-body which i don't love they're pretty anti-sexuality and anti-body the gnostics right which is a drag in a kind of weird way um that is definitely uh gross um but you can also find i mean all the stuff jesus says in the gnostic gospels is like the sickest shit so i mean you gotta you gotta get that stuff in the mix and you gotta get the kind of the sophia of the christ where you get a feminine yeah i noticed i noticed you use the the holy mother designation on um on the record um and i wasn't sure if that was a like kind of a mother mary thing or perhaps this you know the notion of sort of divine wisdom or whatever that's often personified as the holy mother you don't have to clear well, it up. for me personally uh the the mary yeah um Ma- the mary of it all <laughs> even more so than jesus is always really strongly connected with me and and not even in a intellectual way just like uh <laughs> this is a very personal thing but um i was at my cousin's wedding recently in new hampshire and it was on the it was on the um it was on the shores of a reservoir so a lake that where they're beautiful beautiful pure lake and you're not allowed to build any houses you can't have any boats any motor boats and uh i just walked down to the lake during a moment in the break and it was so beautiful and without even thinking i just looked at the lake and i said hi mom (laughs) (laughs) and it was just sort of came out you know what i mean yeah and i for whatever reason uh whenever i think of god and you know my feeling about god is that you can't put god in a box not even a god box you know like like it's all just like it's this this big divine thing and and every now and then it it puts on the the jesus mask or the krishna mask or you know and that that's fun but like that's just a costume that's just like the hand in kermit the frog sure you don't worship kermit the frog you you think about the hand you know that you'll never see um and so but when i think about god and I try to think about God as a personage. It, I always think about a feminine energy. Yeah. Even though um, God is beyond gender. Way. Yeah. Uh, totally. That's the. That's like my. That's the God that like speaks to me the most. Well, is I, like this sort of this um, this divine watery mother. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful and. Uh, Will, it's been just an absolute blast hanging with you and talking about this yeah. stuff. I knew the conversation was going to be great, but I didn't realize it would be quite as great as it was. Thank you so much for being so indulgent and uh, talking and covering a lot of ground. It's been great having you here with us on Transmissions. Thank you for being here. My pleasure, man. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Transmissions. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I produce, write, and host the show. Transmissions is edited by Andrew Horton, and art for the show this week was assembled by Dakota Brown. Our music comes from Frank Mastin, drawn from his incredible discography of library music. Find more by visiting maston.bandcamp.com. That's M-A-S-T-O-N.bandcamp.com. 
Our executive producer is Aquarium Drunkard's founder, Justin Gage. Don't miss his radio program, The Aquarium Drunkard Show, on Sirius XMU Channel 35 at 7 p.m. Pacific Time each and every Wednesday evening. Transmissions is part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. Visit the TalkHouse for more interviews, fascinating reads, and podcasts like Drifter Sympathy with Emil Amos of Grails, Ohm, and Holy Sons. He will be our guest next week on Transmissions. You'll also find a link to No Way Out, an oral history of Sunburn Hand of the Man, which was curated and produced by J. Kelly Davis and presented here in the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions feed by Aquarium Drunkard and the Talkhouse. All right, we will be back soon. Thanks for being here with us. This transmission is concluded. Concluded.